1: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Stephanie K. Dunning, author of Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, published this year by University Press of Mississippi. Dr. Dunning, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Um, well, I'm 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 a I'm from the South. Uh, originally, I was born and raised uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I did my undergraduate work at Spelman College. Um, I did my PhD at the University of California, Riverside, and then I moved to Ohio, where uh, I've been working at Miami University of Ohio since two thousand and one. Um, you know, I, I, in terms of how I, I came to this project, I think that it was, you know, concerns with nature or love of nature or wanting to be in nature was always, um, a part of my life, but I never really thought of it, um, as, you know, just, it was so natural to me that it wasn't an object that I had inquired into really, um, And then, you know, as I write about in the book, um, in 2011, I was, or 2012, somewhere between 2011 and 2012, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, um, and so during that time, I really, uh, found myself spending a lot more time in nature and being more aware of the ways in which, um, I was kind of seeking out these natural places. Simultaneous to that, I started to sort of notice a lot of references to nature in um, the texts that I was most interested in as well. And so that is kind of how Black nature came into being.
1: Okay. And can you tell us what some of these these texts are that you're Analyzing here, it's kind of a an interesting variety of literature, film, music, um, sort of across the whole spectrum.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I um, I talk about everything from um, Octavia Butler to Beyonce um, to um, Daughters of the Dust and Jesmyn Ward. So you know, I sort of just, you know, the other, the other thing about this project is that it's my second book. It's my post-tenure book. So, um, so I, w- so I had, I felt a lot more uh, uh, liberated in terms of curating the set of texts that I wanted. And so I really wrote about the things that I only wanted to write about. Um, a lot of times when you've written a dissertation or when you're writing your first book, you, one can feel that there's like a sort of a burden to, um, to cover the field in a certain kind of way. And I felt less pressure uh, to do that and more pressure to sort of just write about the text that I was you know, drawn to um, in, in, in unique ways. And so, so there is a lot of sort of popular culture analysis in the book, and there's also literary analysis in the book um, most of the texts are by Black women, in fact, all of them are really, except for Beasts of the Southern Wild, which, you know, is in the book more as a kind of, um, as a site of sort of um, where some of the issues around race and nature come together in in ways that don't seem as generative to my reading Um, as some other work does. So, you know, so also, I think it's a very black feminist project in the sense that um, I was drawn to uh, black women's texts and black women's articulations about nature. And so, you know, those are the things that kind of uh, shape the project. And, you know, I would say that this book is really a labor of love for me, and um, was something that I really enjoyed uh, putting together.
1: Yeah, so then the, the larger context uh, in which you're writing and in which all of these different texts were were created is that Black Americans have this kind of conflicted relationship with nature and the land. So could you give us a little bit of the history behind that, that conflicted relationship?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that it's less, you know, I I would sort of phrase it in a in a in a slightly in a slightly different way, not completely different but just a slightly different way to say that racism puts black people into a conflicted relationship to nature. And so, you know, I think that um I mean, not everyone loves nature <laughs> regardless of race. Some people are just not uh into of being outside, uh, but I think relative to, I mean, there's a way in which our in, in our in our popular culture and in our sort of media coverage about national parks, hiking, and things of that sort, Black people get constructed as not being interested in nature. I mean, I'm I'm happy to see now that I think there's a lot of emphasis uh, from a lot of different organizations. Um, that are about that are precisely about black people engaging with nature so I would just say that there's a way in which racism has operated you know geographically relative to what we think of as natural space in a way that has made those spaces historically and presently dangerous um, for black people so that like the history of lynching for example um, has often very much been coded through nature, you know, when, when people are contemplating, uh, lynching in their work. And I I talk about these in the introduction, like Richard Wright's poem, Between the World and Me, is about him walking in the woods and coming upon the, you know, the scene of, of, of a lynching after the fact, a charred body. Um, Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit is, you know, talks about Southern trees, you know, bearing a strange fruit so that trees um, kind of get associated with this this horrific racial violence. Um, I also talk about how uh, discourses of primitivism uh, in in Western culture um, sort of makes you know, has historically made people feel that if you align yourself with nature, then you're playing into stereotypes um, and also slavery. Right. Forced agrarian labor has the effect of uh, radically changing one's relationship to outdoor uh, spaces. So I think that the wedge here is really racism. (laughs) Racism is really the thing. That, that structures, uh, you know, what is perceived as Black aversion to natural space.
1: And then that sort of leads us into the, you know, one of the phrases that's in your subtitle there, pastoral return, which seems to be describing both something that's happening in, you know, these texts where nature is, is taking this more prominent role, but then also kind of a, a physical pastoral return. And you talk about uh, a sort of reversal of the, the so-called great migration, right, where in the early 20th century, a lot of Black people moved into urban areas, but now you're seeing people kind of returning to rural spaces, like physically moving back. Can you talk about kind of the connections between those two elements
2: yeah I mean I think the pastoral return bit is um it's it's both literal and metaphorical in in some ways metaphorical like you know I think in Beyonce's album Lemonade which I talk about in the first chapter um and there's a lot of things in Lemonade that I that I you know didn't even really have time to cover but like you know if you watch that out, if you, it's a visual album, there's kind of a, a movie that goes along with the actual album, then what you see is that in that piece, Beyonce really highlights aspects of um, Black life, Black rural life or pastoral life that the mainstream pays little attention to. Um, like, you know, the, the tradition of um Black horse riders, we don't, we don't, there's a, there's a long, rich tradition of Black horse riding, but we don't hear about that. We don't really get that, um, very much. Um, even, she even goes so far as to sort of record a country song and she, she, she performed that song at the country music awards to much, um, you know, controversy among country music people. So, um, so I, so, so there's a way in which, the return is kind of happening metaphorically and artistically in the work, but it, it also tracks to a trend, which I which I discuss briefly in, in the book, of many people who are returning uh, to the south um in a kind of you know reverse quote unquote reverse migration. And I think this is because the the perception of geographical safety um, has been undermined um, or I should say has been exposed as kind of a wish more than a reality by the the prevalence of racial violence against black people, regardless of location. So the old kind of the, the sort of historical notion that one could go to the North and escape racial violence that mythology doesn't exist anymore because, you know, we, we have seen the footage, we have the names, we have the statistics of all of the Black people uh, killed by extrajudicial vigilantes and police. Um, so there isn't really like, you can't say, this is the state, this is, you know, above this marker in the United States is where Black people rarely experience um, racial violence. You can't say that. So, because it, it's universal, it happens everywhere um, in, in this country. So, so what I are, what I'm talking about, and what you know, many of the pieces that I cite that talk about this are saying, is well, you know, people are saying, well, if you're gonna if if, every, if nowhere is safe, then you might as well live where you want. And some people want to live in the south. Um, some people want to live in, in rural pastoral settings. And so the, the perception or the notion that that is riskier than living you know, up north or maybe out west, that, that perception doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: So in your analysis, you talk a lot about the idea of abolition. So you know, what is it that, that you want to abolish and, and why?
2: Uh well, <laughs> um, so abolition is a uh, is a is a is a term from Afro pessimism, um, which refers to the fact that I mean, you know, one of the primary claims of, of Afro pessimism is that, you know, though um, slavery as we knew it no longer exists. Uh, Black people still are experiencing, uh, you know, social death and still are experiencing um, many of the same phenomenological conditions of slavery. So, um, so abolition refers to, you know, essentially, you know, the, the end of all of the systems, the interlocking systems, which continue to uh, create a world that really requires black subjugation in order to exist. So, in like for example, in 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 between the world and me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is a reference to Richard Wright's poem that I talked about a second ago. Um, you know, he says that when the police kill someone, this isn't really an aberration. This is kind of the function of the police. And so like when people talk about defunding and abolishing the police, I mean, these are some of the ways in which the discourse of abolition um, you know, has, has entered the conversation. These are the kinds of abolitionist impulses that I'm talking about uh, in, the, in the book. You know, Our society requires uh, the subjugation of black people to function and exist as it currently Does and so we can't, you know, we won't see the end of um racial violence and black suffering without abolition. So, this is this is the reason for abolition. Um, for example, Calvin Warren's ontological terror, you know, he opens by talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and about the ways in which a humanist discourse of liberation, um, will never succeed in liberating black people because humanism is 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 sort of historically and ideologically at odds with black liberation. So this is this is what abolition is about. Um, and this is uh and this is this is kind of the ways the way that nature that I'm arguing that nature intersects with these discourses of abolition is that I'm saying that when we see nature show up in a text, and specifically, when we see nature show up in a Black text, it's always a kind of mnemonic for abolition, because it is, because we understand nature to be, and I and I I, I want to be clear that, of course, I'm talking about, you know, nature is a, is a construct. Um, I'm not actually talking about a real thing necessarily because we we construct nature in certain kinds of ways but in black constructions of nature or the black constructions of nature that I'm talking about in the book all of these point towards a a discourse of abolition that that is that is part of of what I'm arguing in the book
1: all right so you've Talk there, you know, a lot about how you draw on uh, these ideas of Afro pessimism. You mentioned Black feminism uh, earlier, but then another source that you draw on in your analysis that was, I guess, a little surprising to me uh, was Buddhism. Uh, so, can you talk about the the role that some Buddhist ideas play in your book?
2: Well, I've been saying for many, many years uh, when I teach. Uh, theory classes i teach literary theory that the next step after post structuralism is zen um, and you know you could there there are, there are like glimmers of this in in the in the work you know i mean in eve sedgwick's touching feeling for example um she has a whole chapter on on buddhism um, and so i i do think that there are these traces within um, academia even, and, and this, this is, this is quite, you know, I think this will be like the next sort of wave of, of um, theorization that happens. So, you know, I'm a longtime meditator. And in fact, um, you know, the way I found out I had a brain tumor was that I was, I was participating in a, in a study at Yale uh, for advanced meditators to go into an MRI machine So, that they could see what happens to the brain when people meditate. And that's how I found out I had a brain tumor. So, I've been a a meditator for a very long time. And um, the way that Zen discourses, and and particularly the notion of interbeing, as first articulated by uh, uh, Digna Han, the way that it it works with the analysis that I'm doing is that Zen, um, that concept of interbeing, I felt captured uh, in a good way, what I saw as the ways in which these black texts engage with nature that is distinct from what we might see in like, you know, the work of John Muir, for example. Um, it was a way for me to kind of articulate what it would mean to in, engage nature with reverence, but not with objectification, not as an other. And Zen discourses just specifically like the notion of homelessness. And when I say homelessness, I'm, I'm using the Zen version of that term. I'm not talking about people who are um, forcefully unhoused, but like um the, the you know the life of homelessness is a common uh turn of phrase in zen discourses to describe the monk's life um it's in the Pali canon when someone decides to become a monk or a nun it is often said you know such and so chose the life of homelessness um because it's like the end of ownership so so one of the ways in which, uh, I'm using Zen in the book is to sort of think about how these ways of approaching and the, the sort of the Zen standard of life is very much abolitionist because it's the end of striving. It's the end of competition. It's the end of ownership. Um, and it's a, it's a gateway and a methodology for, um, transformation of, um, you know, many of the problematic things that we find in society or that we find in ourselves, Zen is a vehicle by which we can sort of uh, transmute and transform these things into something that would be more generative and uh, communal and life-giving. So this is, th- these are the ways in which, um, in which I'm, I'm sort of evoking Zen because I think the monk's life is, is basically, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a personal abolition. It's abolition on a personal level, um, and so it, it's a kind of model for how we might think about abolition in a broader sense as well.
1: All okay. right, and. Now I want to circle back around to something that you had mentioned earlier uh, and kind of probe into it a little more deeply, which is that uh, all of the works that you analyze, except for one, were created by Black women and they all have Black women or girls as their like protagonists. So can you talk a little bit more about you know why you you chose to use uh, all of these works that are centered on on women or girls and uh, you know, kind of what that adds to your your analysis to to have this gender component to it.
2: Well, you know, the interesting thing is that I didn't, um, I didn't start out by saying like, oh, I'm only going to talk about texts by Black women. It just so happened that the most sort of remarkable text to me um, that highlighted uh, the issues that I was thinking about were by black women. So I think that, um, that there is a way in which, um, you know, but it was, but as I was sort of uh, writing the book and working on it, and when I went to write the introduction, I had to acknowledge and sort of think about the sort of um, underlying black feminist ethos that I was bringing to the project. Even though I hadn't originally, I, I didn't set out with the intent to say, "Oh, I'm I'm going to exclude black um, men's work from this." It was really more like these are the texts that I was interested in, and they all happen to be by black women, or in the case of *Beasts of the Southern Wild*, to focus on black women. Um, although um, *The Girl with All the, the Gifts* is is um, originally um the the novel is written by a white man um so um so it was it was more like the the collection of these texts um ended up you know reflecting i think my own deepest black feminist sensibilities um which to me you know, again, it's not an objectified position. It's, it's, it's like, it's where I live basically. So this comes out in the work, but when I moved to this place of, of, of moving towards publication, I had to sort of find a way to articulate the fact that this black feminist framework, which for me is, is my foundational um, existential framework really, Black feminist theorization has a capaciousness to it that allowed for the articulation of this really complex um, constellation of issues that I was looking at. So this intersection of nature, naturalness, uh, Blackness, um, spirituality, Abolition, all of those things came together in these texts, and I think it's a it's a sort of testament to how powerful the theorizations of Black feminism are, because this is the work that comes out of it. This is the artistic work that comes out of that Black feminist framework, and so um, so while it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't um, a choice, like a, a, a conscious choice anyway, it wasn't a, a set of texts that I chose to exclude certain things, because certainly, you know, there are other things that could have been included that I didn't include. Um, but it was more about the, the unique way that these, you know, texts by Black women or about Black women um, embodied the, the kind of like, um, Experimental, capacious, like groundbreaking notions about uh, black ontology in the world that that I was that I was looking to um, to highlight.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: Okay, so I think that's a, a good segue to ask you to do kind of a, a deep dive into one of the the texts that you analyze. Give us sort of a, a taste of you know how you approach uh, how you approach reading uh, one of these these works, uh, and I'd like you to if you could uh, talk about my favorite of the works that you analyzed, which is uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. So can you give us kind of a, a overview of uh, what that novel uh, you know, means and how it relates to the themes that you've been talking about here?
2: Um, you know, Butler uh, was, she was a writer, but she was also a prophet. And I think that um Parable of the Sower is such a powerful text for anyone who encounters it. I've taught it many, many times, and there's a lot of, of, of work around Butler now. Um there's a there's operas, there's a film being made, there was a graphic novel made of Parable of the Sower. Um and um and all of that work is so wonderful and, and, and embodied of, of Black women's experience. And I think that for me, um, Parable of the Sower is such an important book because it, it, the, through the character of Lauren Olamina, um, who is, you know, it's like, <laughs> here she is, this, this young Black protagonist who's warning the other people uh, who can see the writing on the wall. You know, she's warning the other people that something is going to have to happen. Uh, like, and, and it's not a matter of, of choice. Like the society, the, the, the sort of tenuous society that they're living in, in the, in the novel, um, is going to, it's going to break and that, and that people sort of need to be prepared for it. What I, what I love about Parable of the Sower and the, and the Parable series, and really all of Butler's work, is that um, Butler shows us a problem, but she also suggests a solution. And the solution, of course, is completely abolitionist. Lauren Olamina starts over, she starts a new community, she starts a new faith-based system, if you wanna call it faith, uh, you know, faith in change, which which is you know, a fact of life, um, a very Zen sort of fact of life. And you know, so this um, this novel, I approach the novel very much as a way of talking about apocalypse. Um, because one of the ways in which society doesn't change, is through a concerted and ongoing um, effort to stigmatize and pathologize um, societal collapse. So um, I talk about, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm not gonna remember his life. I talk about a book called Against the Grain in which um, I think the author's name is, is James C. Scott. Um, yeah. In which he talks about how you know civilizations fall. Um, it's just it's sort of a fact of civilization. That's that's what that's what history says. And 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 he he says you know for only for state elites is the collapse of civilization a problem. And so you know when we think about abolition or we think about apocalypse. You know, everyone gets afraid because we've all seen the purge and we've all seen, you know, uh World War Z and all these films that suggest that without the police, without government, without the the sort of behemoth of of state control that we currently live under, you know, it's just going to be hell. It's going to be horrible. Everyone's going to be dying in the street and and that kind of thing. And I think what Parable of the Sower shows is like, yes there could be violence, um, although, you know, as I point out in my book, that assumes that we aren't living with violence now, <laughs> so, which is not the case. We are living, in, in in America especially, we are living in an incredibly violent society where you can really be killed at any time, um, so I think one of the things that's so compelling about Parable of the Sower is that you know, it says, yeah, things are are collapsing, like things are not good. Yes, there's violence, there's people burning in the streets. But there is a way that we might be able to reimagine how to be in community. And there's a way in which we might articulate who we are differently than we have before. And, um, and that is kind of the role that Lauren Olamina uh, plays in in that novel. And so, um, and you know, the fact that uh, Butler um, illuminates the way out through uh, a Black, a young Black uh, woman protagonist um, also says something about, you know, the dynamics, the structural dynamics of what a post abolition world would look like and the sorts of notions about who gets to lead who has the good ideas all of those things are are sort of uh turned on their head by a parable of the sower as this you know uh i don't know she's like maybe 17 or 18 at the beginning of the novel as this you know 18 year old girl leads a group of people sort of into the wilderness in in. Together they figure out a completely different way to live. So I think this is this is this is you know what makes the novel so compelling, and it's and my interest in it is is very much about um is very much about showing that this perception we have that on the other side of abolition is nothing but death and chaos is is not the case. I think the parable of the sower very effectively shows the possibility of small communities and new ways of thinking and being.
1: Okay. So then the next thing I wanted to ask about is actually the cover image of the book. Uh, So, uh, Listeners to the podcast might want to just Google it uh, since I can't really do it just as trying to describe it in, in an audio medium, but it's kind of a, a collage style piece showing a woman reaching for a fruit on a tree and then you've got a couple of snakes peeking into the frame. So can you tell us about this image uh, and why you chose it for the cover of the book?
2: Well, the, the image is by an artist um, called wangechi mutu, um, whose work I absolutely love. Um, and I, I the reason I chose the image um, is because I th- well, first of all, I thought it was beautiful. And second of all, I thought that it spoke to um, the themes of the text very well because um, in the introduction, I talk a lot about the imagery from the Garden of Eden. And um, and so the image kind of evokes the Garden of Eden. We have a woman, there's a snake, there's sort of a fruit hanging from a tree. and um, But yet there are these um, sort of metal, it looks like sort of metal parts that make up the, the body. Of this woman, and so um, to me, the image uh, speaks to all of these. Um, like it sort of references a kind of history that I unpack around the ways in which Western society um, constructed nature as an other, and the role that the um, that the story of, about the Garden of Eden plays in that, and. This image is a kind of embrace of um, that story as opposed to, a, a, or a, a sort of embrace of the natural scenario of the Garden of Eden. You know, the instead of recoiling from the serpent, um, she, the, the woman is reaching out. Both she and the serpent are reaching for the fruit and she seems unafraid and, um, and so it isn't, it isn't the kind of menacing idea about nature that we have inherited from this, 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 story, this story of the fall from grace. Um, and so, you know, for me, the image really speaks to, you know, in a really beautiful and complex way, um, all of what I'm trying to get at about uh, black engagement with nature. As a kind of way to think about uh, how we could get ourselves out of the 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 literal and figurative tangles we have we have made of of our of our place in the natural world and the ways in which that the inheritance of that tangle is anti-blackness.
1: All right. So we're getting towards the end of our time here. So uh, before we closed, I wanted to first give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book.
2: Oh, that's, I didn't expect that. That's, that's super, that's super nice. Well, you know, there are so many um, people whose work um, I absolutely adore and, and who, you know, whose own theorizations um, allowed me to, to, to trace this trajectory. And I I list a lot of them in my, um, acknowledgements, but in terms of like, um, you know, sort of being someone I could constantly talk through ideas with and bounce things off of, you know, uh, Candace Jenkins, she's a professor at, um, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And, um, and has been a, a wonderful colleague and friend in terms of um, you know, just being there to listen to my flights of fancy, not all of which uh, made it into the book, but um, that, that process of sort of having that back and forth with an incredibly brilliant person is always you know, just super helpful. So I'm, I'm deeply and forever indebted um, to our conversations. So thank you, Candice.
1: All right. So then to finish with our traditional final question, uh, what are you working on next?
2: Well, <laughs> so um, I'm working on a book that is about, um, that, that sort of does a kind of um, similar methodology to uh, what I did in Black to Nature, which is about thinking about blackness, interstellar space, and ecology together. So, um, so that's, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and um, I'm still, you know, I'm still at the beginning stages of that, of that project, but um, it's, I'm super excited about it. And, you know, I'm teaching in London this summer, I'm teaching a class on it. And I've given a, a couple of talks from, you know, that, that draw from this, from this work. And so it's just been really, uh, fun for me to sort of think about, um, the relationship of, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm using a kind of Afro pessimist framework to sort of think about how discourses of space, Black discourses of space in, in literature and popular culture, um, evoke all these ideas and sort of expand uh the territory of um of of like alternate space where abolition and liberation might be possible
1: all right well that sounds really fascinating i'll definitely keep an eye out for that (laughs) thank Um, you so dr dunning thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me i appreciate it You just heard a conversation with Stephanie K. Dunning, author of Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, published this year by University Press of Mississippi.